0: I'm Sonia Morton-Firth and you're tuned in to The Sonia Morton-Firth Show. Today my guest is Dean Stott. Dean is a Special Forces veteran, world record holder, adventurer, philanthropist, author and speaker. After leaving the military following a parachute accident, he went into the private security sector and during one of his missions, he single-handedly evacuated the Canadian Embassy. Watch this interview to gain an insight into the mindset behind the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. First of all, I'd like to say thank you so much for being on my show today. Um, And I was just saying it would be lovely to have it live, but you're all the way up in Aberdeen. So it might have taken us quite a long time to get together.
1: Yeah, yeah, a long time probably. Yeah, but no, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah.
0: Dean, you've done an incredible amount of extraordinary things in your life. But what I want to sort of ask you first is about your tagline, The Unrelenting Pursuit of Excellence, and what that really means to you and and how you got that line.
1: So I got the line, the line is actually one of the ethos of the UK Special Forces. You know, we have humility, we have um, courage, Um, integrity, and the Unrelenting Pursuit of Excellence is also one of them. And for me, I think it's it's a great ethos because it's not just in military or in sport. It can be anything you do, your everyday approach, that if you're going to do something, you do it to the best of your ability. So for me, when I start a new project, I don't like to for example, the cycling, I wasn't comfortable in just going, joining the cycling club. I had to find the longest road in the world and try and beat the world record. So I'm always pushing the boundaries. But the great thing about that ethos as well is, and people to be aware of, is not to compare themselves to others. It's your unrelenting pursuit of excellence. As long as you've given your 100%, you'll sleep well at night.
0: Do you think, I mean, you, you served for 16 years in the special forces do you think some or how did that experience sort of shape where who you are today
1: yeah so sort of going back to the earlier story my my father was in the military and my grandparents in the military so i was very much immersed in that environment so i lived and breathed the the military lifestyle i actually didn't want to join the military myself i wanted to be a fireman um but then when i told my approached my father and told him my intentions you know he gave me them warm comforting words i'd last two minutes It wasn't the response I was expecting, but (laughs) uh, nine nine and a half stone and five foot seven. I could probably see where he was coming from, but hindsight is a great thing. It may have been reverse psychology. And so I didn't have any aspirations of being a soldier, especially special forces. I didn't know much about the military. So when I I did join the, the military, my father then took me aside and sort of explained in detail, uh, the elements of it. But he was a football manager and coach for the army. So he, yeah, so he, for the army teams, so his, his military career was very much, we call them tracksuit soldiers. That's your discipline. And this was, this was long before Afghanistan and the likes of Iraq and things like that. So there, there was the time and manpower to do that. But I soon realized I joined the military. I mean, I ended up going to Germany, playing for the, the, the engineer team over there. And I was just like, you know, I want to carve my own path and I joined the commando course but within a short period of four years from the age of 17 to 21 I I was a para commando a diver and PTI so every time I was doing courses I was getting more confident in my abilities and I was starting to believe in myself and it was almost well what next and what next it was nothing it wasn't something I'd always wanted to do as a child Uh, and there's a lot of guys that all I've ever wanted to be as a young boy is a Marine or a para or in the SAS and SBS. So I, I didn't have, I didn't put myself under that, that pressure. But as I started evolving as a soldier, I thought, well, what's, what's next? And so, yeah, I sort of fell into it by accident. I never even heard of the Royal Marines or the SBS uh, when I joined the military.
0: And how difficult or what challenges did you have whilst you were going through that period of your life? Um, I think
1: obviously there's a the natural physical challenges as well, especially at a young age. You know, at seventeen, you, you've not fully developed as a as a man yet. I remember going back. I did my commander course at nineteen. I remember going back three years later as an instructor and finding it so much easier. So it's you know the people join the career join the military at different stages in their lives. I think those that start young have always got that fire in their belly and. Those that started a bit older and a bit more wiser, but more developed. So there was the physical uh, issues as well. But for me, I saw most, my family anyway, we're not a close-knit family. We don't have an extended family anyway. It was just my dad and my sisters, uh, my parents split up. So for me, it was almost like I found a new family. I, I felt I, I had a purpose. So I really, I really um, sort of you know, took, up, took advantage of that situation. And, and it wasn't long before you know, I was only going to do three years and next thing it's six and nine and I mean you, you ended up being a career soldier. So it wasn't uh, something I'd sort of planned on doing, I just sort of fell into it by accident and naturally um, did well in the environment. I enjoyed being around the guys as well. I just felt felt like I was part of the unit, part of the family or, you know, part of the team.
0: I just want to pick up on something you said. You said you felt, felt like you had a purpose. Um, how, what was it like or how did you feel when you left the military um, and, and sort of having to fit back into civilian life or fit back into society? Because yeah. presumably you, you felt like you had a family, as you said, a purpose around you. And then suddenly you, you, you've come out into a completely different life. How was that? So
1: for me, I never planned on leaving the military. As far as I was concerned, I was what they call a lifer. Exactly. I was a man all, all the way through. So um, but we're just about to go to Afghanistan on another, another tour, and I had a parachuting accident. Um, I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus, my hamstring, my car, and my quads, all did the support. Don't tell me the parachute didn't
0: open.
1: Did, 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 no, this it was, it was, it was, was a freak accident, actually. We were jumping at 15,000 feet. Uh, it's called a hey-ho jump, a high-altitude, high-opening jump. So it's a, it's a method of insertion. So unlike skydiving where you, you're free of lines, this, the, the uh, parachute still attached to um, the, the aircraft. So as you exit, exit the aircraft, the parachute will pull out for you. But my leg got caught up in the line on the exit somehow, and I just couldn't. I was frantically trying to kick it out before my leg got torn completely off. Thankfully, it didn't. It pulled my leg up and over my head. But the first issue I had with this was I still had to travel up to 30 minutes in the air to the to the DZ. But no, no one else in the team was aware there was a situation. At 15,000 feet, you're on the limits of options. So I'm also drifting in and out of consciousness and vomiting because of the pain. So my, my first concern was, was landing it. If I had a bad landing, I could damage uh, the good leg. But it was a great landing. It was a one-legged landing. I was quite impressed. But um, unfortunately the damage sustained short in my career. So I didn't plan on leaving the military. So all I'd ever known was that military lifestyle, you know, as a young boy growing up, I mean, 16 years in the military myself, to then be told, you "No, know, thank you for your time. You will now go in this direction. As, as seeing your friends going off to Afghanistan and you're going that way. So there's a lot of uh, synergies and parallels between professional sports people in Special Forces. You've spent your career knowing what you're doing, trying to get yourself to the top of your game, you're finally there and then an injury or retirement um, and you're in another direction. So in reflection, I didn't know it at the time, but it's what's called an identity crisis. It's how do I now fit into this society here? You know, I've come from being a tight knit unit, uh, having a role, having a purpose, like we knew what we were doing for the next 10 years. So how do I now fit in society? And I, I was guilty of it myself, and a lot of guys and girls in the military are probably the same, but I was very quick to blame the civilian community.
0: Yeah.
1: I was like, well, they don't understand. They're always late, they're, they're, but that's, that's the civilian community. There's nothing wrong with that. That is just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I then soon realized that we're unique. We need to fit into their will, not them fit into ours, and that's something I picked up on quite quickly. Um, so that, along with my wife being very entrepreneurial, my transition was a lot lot smoother than maybe some others you know in the military you don't know who provides the council tax or you know the heating supply you don't care you know you're just doing the job you love the military are very good in keeping those distractions away from you but now all of a sudden you've got to be aware of these and that, that's that's quite quite daunting
0: so how did you then go from obviously being in the military not just the military in the special forces to finding like your value or your purpose or what you wanted to do next um, in in civilian life.
1: So, So for me to add to the pressure when I left, my wife was eight months pregnant as well. So my initial thought was, how am I going to support my family? Is there any work out there and everything else? So within 48 hours, I was out, you know, people with our skill sets without sounding like Liam Neeson, the natural progression is the security industry. Yeah. And, you know, I used to tell people I was in the security industry and I think they thought I was a dormant in Club Tropicana, but it's actually quite, quite a diverse industry as well, be it surveillance, close protection, coaching or mentoring. But within 48 hours, I was out in Libya helping set up the DIVID project with the British Embassy. It was the Arab Spring, and um, Gaddafi was now in Tripoli. Um, circ- uh, the, the city was was um, cornered off. So all the oil and gas media NGOs were all forming up in Benghazi. So for me, I was trying to find a niche as well. You know how how am I going to excel in this new this new industry? But I soon identified that Libyans didn't want Libya being another Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm -hmm. Uh, They wanted to take control of the country themselves. But also that these large security companies were charging six-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans. When I started scraping the surface, there was nothing in place. So I flew home, my wife gave birth to our daughter Molly, and then I flew back into the country and I bought 30 weapons on the black market. And I buried them between Tunis and Egypt and just spent a month on my own in the desert, just designing my own...
0: You didn't have a team, you literally buried these weapons in the desert.
1: Yeah, yeah, with myself and um, you know I have a local fixer who sort of assisted with certain things but it was just myself in the desert at night and then I'd lay up in the daytime and then go out in the evenings And, and I would just have them strategically placed across the country along with comms kits and some money and I just designed my own evacuation plans and I then sold them to the oil and gas sector and a few other companies and hopefully never needing to use them. So I was, that was my sort of niche. And in 2012, when the American ambassador got killed in Benghazi, I was there that evening and I evacuated a German oil company from Benghazi back to Tripoli, which was a success. And then 2014, I was covering the, uh, the World Cup in, in Brazil. And I got a phone call, it's now the Tripoli war, which is a civil war ongoing now still actually between the government and the militias. And the Canadian embassy was stuck in Tripoli. So I came back in and I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy, 18 military and four diplomats from Libya to Tunis. But the great thing about that is I never needed any of my weapons. It was actually the success of that was understanding the demographics and the politics, the tribal influences in the countries. And that's one thing I picked up in the special forces. Everyone has this perception of kicking in doors and blowing down buildings yeah. and things like that, yeah. which is, yeah, yeah, which is twenty five percent of what we do and we're very good at that. But that's the last resort. Fifty percent of what we do is understanding it's called support and influence, it's hearts and minds, understanding the actual situation on the ground and not being steered by what you're seeing on TV. And and that's what it that was the success of that, and that's how I then became the top of the top of the power within the security industry.
0: That's a really Interesting point. So, so basically, you, said, you were saying it, it was my, partly physical, obviously, but a lot of it was the, your mindset going into that situation. Presumably, remaining calm and and, and sorting the situation out. But how did you take it further? Because presumably, you needed authority, confidence, or something behind you to win that situation over. Yeah. What What makes one man or woman? I'm I'm referring to man. Or yeah, yeah be able to, to command that authority over another? Because that, yeah. that goes to other things in life as well, obviously. Yeah. I
1: don't think it was, it was commanding authority. I think it was it was mutual respect. Um, it's it Actually, a lot of it was all about communication. You know, the week before I took the Amer- uh, Canadian embassy out, the British embassy got shot at at every checkpoint that we would be going through, which obviously spooked the Canadians. So I went out, and again, the success of this is also having the right fixer. It's having the right person in the right place. And Libya's got 164 tribes. So my fixer in Tripoli isn't the fixer I would use in Benghazi. And again, it's identifying those right, the right people. But it was just going to the tribal elders, letting them know what our intentions were, and just being transparent with them. Um, and that's all they wanted. They wanted a bit of respect. And, and I think that's what it is. And I think that's where the success of that... And, you know, when I worked in Yemen and Somalia, again I work on my own. I go in on my own, but you get you gain the respect of the locals and those you're chatting to because you've you've taken that risk. You're out there. You're identifying the the atmospherics. You know, they'll get emails every day from security companies in London and, and New York offering all the similar services. But the fact that you've taken a risk yourself spoke volumes to them. You know. A white man on his own walking around somalia
0: is a norm and you're going to meet them face to face like you say rather than on some email or phone or whatever you're actually there in person uh he yeah. reminds me of my old sales days and uh never wanting to do anything on the phone but actually wanting to be in front of somebody and i think that rings so true to today but unfortunately we we can't be there face to face today no, true, true no very true but i
1: think again it's it, again it, the world of media as well, you know, paints a picture of of these communities. And that's one thing I really wanted to get across as well, especially in my book, is that, you know, these communities are tarnished with one brush, but it's only such a small, small minority that are bad. And actually, they're so hospitable and so friendly. I wanted to paint another picture of what it's like in Somalia and Yemen. I remember spearfishing just south of Mogadishu and grabbing lobsters. No, it's it's a beautiful place, but what you see on telly or... the internet is a different thing
0: a completely different thing um so you after that you went on and we've got to mention this you've actually broken not one world record but two world records in one of the most uh what sounds like toughest challenges out there tell me a little bit more about that challenge and and what motivated you to do it so We've
1: talked about the Canadian Embassy. When I came home from that trip, my wife soon highlighted that I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. And again, you know, I think it's chapter 16 in the books called Dead or Divorced. It was it was that almost T junction in my life. It was the big, uh, the pin drop. I didn't realize it at the time, but I totally disconnected from society. What I thought was normal, evacuating people across borders, burying weapons wasn't normal. And um, I was trying to match that adrenaline rush I had or scratch that itch that I had when I was still in the special forces without coming to terms with the fact that I'd left. So that was a big, big wake up call for myself. My wife's a property developer here and she said, well, look, you don't need to be taking these risks. Come work with me. So I I started working with my wife for a month and you can imagine my back story sat in these architects and planners meetings and all that. I wasn't really interested. Um, But... This is probably five years from being injured out of the military. I neglected my own physical and mental well-being, so my injured leg was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. So I bought a push bike off Amazon, I just cycled to and from the office, and uh, was straight away, it's about eight miles there, eight miles back, straight away being active again, physically active, I felt being a lot better. I thought, oh, this is, you know, I had a purpose. I had, a, had something to do. But my wife could see that glaze in my eyes. She said, right, you need to do something. Um, rather than burying weapons and smuggling people across borders. So it was about a month before my 40th birthday. And I said, well, I've always fancied doing a world record. And then um, she said, well, what in? And I said, well, cycling doesn't seem to be hurting my knee. Why not cycling? So I was thinking maybe Aberdeen to Dundee. Um, but my wife then found the world's longest motorable road, which is 14,000 miles um, from southern point of Argentina to northern Alaska. So because of the curvature of the earth, it's a equivalent to cycling from London to Sydney and then 4,000 miles. Mm-hmm. So having haven't only cycled 20 miles. I applied for the world record. I thought, yeah, why not? Um, cause for me, I, you know, I wanted to give, I, I give it everything, every project I do, I'll give my, you know, the unrelenting pursuers, I'll push myself to the limits, but I knew that endurance wise and uh, mentally that I had it from my time in the military It's just transferring that into a, a sport. So Guinness came back and said, yeah, you've been successful on your application. So um, the first person I, I called, I'm good friends with, uh, I'm going to massively name drop now, is the Duke of Sussex. So I called him up and I, we'd known each other about 13 years. And him and I had done stuff for charities before with the military. And I made him aware of uh, my intentions with his bike ride. And this was 2016. So Heads Together campaign, big mental health campaign, hadn't even been launched at this point. I was aware of mental health in the military, but I wasn't aware how big an issue I was throughout the whole of society. Mm. And so um, we—I uh, just thought perfect. Be it postnatal depression, young children, teenagers—that's the perfect challenge for this. So that was the birth of the uh, of the challenge.
0: Had you suffered, Sorry, just going back to the point: had you suffered PTSD um, from the military? Have you got? No, to- I
1: haven't suffered PTSD. I'm very fortunate not to, um, you know, suffer anything. Else, but I had seen it first hands with, with with some of my friends. In reflection, my own mental health, um, I think, I didn't know it at the time, but getting injured out from the military, that identity crisis, that, where do I fit? You know, there was probably a little bit of depression there because my, my career had been solely focused on my physical attributes. To so then be injured and not be able to do anything, I really... I was, I was off balance, as I like to say. Yeah. Um, no, very fortunately, I don't have post-traumatic stress. But then, having now done this campaign, seeing that it affects everyone, it doesn't discriminate, you know, it was, it was the perfect challenge for me. Um, but I was trying to promote the physical activity helps your mental state. That, that was my messaging with this challenge, yeah.
0: And, I mean, it must have been quite a gruelling challenge, <laughs> uh, I can guess. Uh, what sort of... There must have been points along the route where you're just like, oh God, I really want to give up. What got you through? How did you mentally keep going? What was the mental stamina like behind it?
1: Yeah, so with this, I'd never, you know, I'd still had a only cycle 20 miles. I I trained for a year before we went, you know, I built up my mileage and things like that. But I just took it as a military operation and just crossed out, you know, I just put a military set of orders on there and crossed out ammunition. So from the planning side, I I was confident in in the plan. On the fiscal aspect, I thought, you know, I, I will do this. But what I used to do, I used to trick the mind. So 14,000 miles is a long way. Just consume it just consumed me. You wouldn't even get on the plane. But it's a bit like Special Forces Selection, six months long. You only deal with the day that's in front of you. You know, So on day one, you don't look at six months later getting your beret and belt. You just look at the CFT. And that's what I did is I broke it into countries broke the countries into days and broke the days into four stages so for me I was just doing so I get in the morning have breakfast cycle as fast as I could for two hours and then just have some food and water for 30 minutes but then I was quite disciplined in my timings as well It was almost like a military operation I was back on the bike and all I would then look at is the next two hours I wouldn't look at that afternoon I wouldn't look at the next day so for me I was just doing four mini PT sessions a day and not a real record. Before you know it, you've done a, you know, done a day, you've done a week, you've done a country. And you're also growing confident in your, in your abilities along the way. But also made sure that I hit my objectives for the day. I thought that was quite key for my mental state going to bed that evening. You know, I, I, see, I see people or other people doing challenges that are like 10 miles behind today, I'll catch that up tomorrow. And well, you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm so and you could have another bad day and be 20 to 30 miles behind so mentally you're beating yourself up because you're not where you're supposed to be so for me i always made sure i i just stay on the bike until i hit the objective so the next day i was in the, in, the, in the right position
0: and do you think you can take that into other things in life i mean obviously that this is a challenge that you're talking about a grueling yeah. challenge um, but what you just talked about there is um quite similar to, to goal setting, I guess, and how, how you set your, your your achievements or visions for the future. Rather yeah. than just look at this big vision, it's how you chunk it down.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, like, like corporates, they'll have their targets for the end of the year, financial year, and it'll just look like, oh my God, that's, that's unachievable. But it's, it's just chipping away and breaking that down so that you and the team can deal with it mentally. But it's a bit like... And then with the other analogy, it's a bit like sales, you know, you just stay in the office, make those extra three or four calls, you know, don't go home early, just stay there until the job, job's done. And then, you know, those extra three or four calls may be the difference between, you know, the, the end result uh, as well.
0: What was the end result for you? Because obviously you've got two world records, but was there anything else that you were focused on? I believe you were coming back for a special wedding
1: yeah well that wasn't really the plan so the world record was 117 days i was aiming for 110 and it wasn't because i wanted to smash it by a week it's because when i'd done the planning um you know i looked at every potential scenario that could happen and I had a contingency plan and a tertiary plan but there were situations that were out of my control natural disasters queues in countries everything else so i thought well i'll have a week's fudge so should being issues it eats into that time and not the world record so i think the worst position i was in by the end of the first week was 39 miles behind target because i had strong winds but my target was still a week ahead of the world record so i was always in a good position i then you know the winds then changed to my advantage uh i took 10 days off the south america world record it wasn't without issues i had food poisoning twice in peru i crashed the bike in chile got knocked off my bike in colombia but it wasn't something that was you know um ruined the challenge completely I then got to North America on day 70 and I'm 40 days ahead of the world record so I thought perfect you know I can take a couple of days rest if need be we, we are where we where we should be and then my wife rang me and said we've been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding which just changed the dynamic. just completely. that little wedding <laughs> just a little wedding it was obviously great to be invited, but yeah. going into that phone call, I was 14 days ahead of were record. Ten minutes later, I'm now a day behind. For me to get back for the wedding, I had to be finished by day 102. So all my efforts from the first two and a half months had just gone. Um, and then the next day, I had uh, 60 mile an hour winds and tornadoes in Texas. So I was now two days behind. So I just, uh, again, I just changed the plan of the project. Um, there's an app on your phone called Windy TV, is strength and directions of the winds forecasted every hour for the next two weeks. So that 24 hour period, I, I made a plan and I, to get out of Lubbock, I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours. And I just played chess with Mother Nature with the app, finding gaps in the winds and using it to my advantage as well. And the luxury we had in North American Canada is a lot safer security wise, so I could cycle at night. Um, so I had 17 days planned for North America and I cycled in 11 and a half days. So I gained that time to then be ahead of where I should be. So I was a week outside and I was like, ah, perfect. You know, the world record's secure unless I get eaten by a bear uh, and I'll be back in time for this wedding. I then got a phone call about a professional cyclist. So I still class myself as a novice. Um, you know, I just, yeah, I, 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 my sponsorship marketing team did a SWOT analysis and we did the strength, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and threats. And the only weakness that came back at the beginning of the challenge was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I took as a strength. And no one's ever said that in the cycling community. But I got a week outside, and this professional cyclist, who, uh, Michael, he already has three other endurance world records. He's sponsored by Red Bull. He's the Austrian triathlon team. He'd come out on social media and said he was going to cycle the Pan American Highway in August and be the first man in history to do it under 100 days. So that, that then changed the dynamics for me again. So I cycled for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to make sure that I came in under the 100 days. So it wasn't the original plan, but fortunately for me, when the information came to me, I, I, I could act on it. You know, if I'd known about Michael and the wedding from day one, it may have been too much to, you know, yes. to deal with. But uh, so it wasn't the original plan, Um, and and I sort of contradict myself. I say the success of this challenge was the planning, but actually the success of this was being able to react to the situation on the ground as it changed.
0: And I guess that goes for a lot of things as well. Things change in life and you've got to be able to be flexible. Yeah, but also... um...
1: sorry, you have your start point, you have your objective, that's always the same. It's just how the route there isn't always as straight.
0: And, and you mentioned planning um, a couple of times and, and obviously that, that's a, a big part of it. What, How did you, or, or what was the planning involved and, and how important is that? Presumably that that's made part of a, a lot of your sort of career in the, the special forces as well. Planning must be a, a huge part of going into a mission.
1: Yeah, planning is a, a huge part of going into the mission. You, you know, you... You know, we, we have sort of templates that, that we use and you always, always, we call them actions on, you always look at the potentials, what if this, what if this, what's the plan, what is that? You always have secondary and tertiary uh, plans. But you can, we, we always say, yeah, the best plan in the world doesn't survive first contact. You know, no one expected to shoot back at us. I think it's good to have a plan in place, but also to be mindful of the fact that it never goes to plan. And, and I think that's where we're quite good, especially the Special Forces. We're very much, um, you know, I, I refer to the Green Army and the Special Forces, we're very much different. The Green Army, like, they know what they're doing, where they've got to be, what time, what they're wearing, whereas we're almost a different mindset. We get dropped into a place, there is no infrastructure. You've got to make it happen, and that's what I love. I love a challenge like that, is, is to make things happen. Going into Somalia on my own, set up companies, you know, I like a little uh, challenge. So. So planning is good. Planning is good. It's always good to have a plan, but don't be upset if it doesn't go to plan, just react to the situation. Not like, not things like COVID, no one can anticipate At the beginning of the year we've been in this situation, but you adapt to the situation, you get creative and, and you just keep moving forward. Um,
0: what do you actually do to relax? <laughs> is that part of your, your ethos? Uh, do you relax or do you, do you, have, do you get stressed about anything? Um,
1: I, do, I, do, um, I, do, I do try and relax, my, my time is with my family. I've never spent as much time as I have during this period, ever, with my family. So that, that's been quite good. But for me, I like to have something to look forward to. I like to have a challenge, you know, you know. and my next challenge is to, is to kayak the River Nile. I know that's probably not going to happen this year, but I've set myself many challenges um, as well. So I like to be physically active. I think that's really key, especially in this, this period now is, is, you know, stay active. You yeah. know, yes, you can't, you can't do huge, huge challenges, but, you know, just keep yourself ticking over. So for me, this is the perfect time for me to do the planning rather than the physical. Uh, so I'm getting a lot of planning in.
0: So can you reveal any of the next challenges that you're, that's coming next?
1: Yeah, so my USP is, you know, I, I, unlike other adventures and challenges, I take a sport or discipline I've never done before find the biggest challenge so i've been quite arrogant to the cycling community um i've enjoyed cycling the world's longest road the plan now is to kayak the world's longest river which has never been done before you know from source to sea so from the source in rwanda to uh, the mediterranean sea which is four thousand two hundred eighty miles but unlike the last challenge you know the last challenge i spoke to the previous record holders and that was good because you can get a lot of information you needed and i think one thing i was proud of with the last challenge is i spoke to them all and they all went from north to south but all their issues were in south and central america so i turned yeah. it on its head i just turned it around but with this new one we've got no one really there's people that have done the stages but no one's done it from start to end but i love the fact that i talked about earlier about the you know these nations are so hospitable that actually i'm putting all my responsibility in, into their hands and let
0: them get me through it so Tell me about your book because yes. you you how when did you write the book? It's called Relentless. I can see it behind you. That's yeah, yeah, a good... yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, nice little plug. Yeah. So um, yeah, Relentless. Well, I to be honest, I never when I came back from the bike ride, I didn't see it as a career in guest speaking or doing a book or even other challenges. I did it, so I wasn't you know running around the desert with weapons and, and yes. smuggling people. Um, so we weren't really in a position. As, a, as a, a, a another career, but um, I got introduced to uh, the Blair Partnerships, they and Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and Neil Blair is a lovely guy. I sat down with him, told him my story as I've told you, and he said, "Yeah, this needs to be uh, a book." At the moment, there's I, you know there's a lot of books out there. I call them Biceps and bullets. You know, there's a lot of books out there because people are on the TV. It
0: biceps and bullets
1: <laughs> because they're, you know, they're, they're on TV and people like to hear the stories of the special forces, but actually you can't talk about the special forces mm. in, in your books. But what's unique great about this book is there's all the other stories, the private security stories, and I've only touched on on some of the some of the amazing stories that I did there. And, and that's where the great thing about the book is that I can, I can share those stories and it actually flows. The first bird is about my childhood and the military, um, middle third is the private security and then the last third is the bike ride and it's all those experiences and lessons learned from the first two thirds that have just been transferred into a new discipline
0: tell me what the biggest lessons learned are if you look at what you've been through through all those different phases of your life is there any one thing that really sticks out or maybe a couple of things that that stick out for you uh
1: lessons learned is uh well um I'm very trusting. I'm probably too trusting, my wife says. Um, so, one is, is not put everything out there. I'm, I'm very, you know, we work well together, me and my wife. We know our strengths and weaknesses. You now, I'm, I'm the door open, I'm the sociable one. But when it comes to contracts and money, my wife deals, deals with that. So, so that's one. Now, yeah, I've been burnt a couple of times in trusting people. Um, but that's, that's probably my, my own lesson to myself. But one I you normally tell people is anticipation. Is worse than participation. You know, a lot of people overthink things and things like that. Just don't overthink it. Just just, just do it and, and then in reflection you'll be like, it actually wasn't that bad.
0: I like that. Don't overthink it because it can lead to procrastination as well and you never actually doing anything about it.
1: It is as well. I think you know, if I was to tell someone on the street, right, you're gonna run the London marathon in two months, they'll tell me all the reasons why they can't do it. Whereas I will tell you all the reasons why you can. So it's almost blocking off those exits
0: do you have any advice out there if someone was watching this um, and they wanted to do some sort of challenge it could be any challenge in life what advice would you give them to either get started or to help them along their journey
1: um what i say is you know you have your objective write your objective down but don't worry about the target yet you know break it down into manageable bite sizes you know because you know i'll always use the the marathon as an example, 26 miles. People will try and run that straight away and won't achieve it. So they're deflated, they're defeated as well. So you need to break it down into, start at the beginning, start with four miles. You know what I mean? Achieve that. I mean, start growing with confidence. Start learning about the sport or discipline that you're doing. I, I didn't know anything about cycling. I did, I did Land's End on a growth three weeks after cycling. And, and my, everyone said to me, oh, ah, you're not bike fit yet. And I thought it was fitness. It actually wanted your measurements to your bikes. So I, I learned a lot from that and then realized actually I needed some expert help. Um, so yeah, don't be scared to ask the people uh, for help who, who know more about it. You know, I try and carve. you know, mentally will only get you so far. Um, you know, you, you, need, you need help with that, but me- break it down into manageable bite sizes. Don't overthink it.
0: Dean, it's been fantastic speaking to you. And before I come on to my last question, where can people find out more about you? Obviously, you've got your book out. Yes. Uh, anywhere else that people can, if, if they want to talk to you or, um, or, or get you on stage, for example. Well, maybe not right now, get you physically on stage. But... Yeah,
1: no, yeah. You keep, well, I'm obviously on all the social media platforms, Instagram and Facebook, uh, Dean Stott. Uh, back on Twitter now, at Dean Stott SPS, I think I've got that right. And uh, my website is so you can get in touch with me on on all of them. And the book's uh, on Amazon, Audio, and Waterstones
0: at the moment. Fantastic. We'll put all that on the show notes. And for my final question, Dean, if you were to write a message in the bottle for future generations to find, what would that message be?
1: Um... Have your own path, learn from your mistakes, don't repeat your mistakes.
0: Love it. Dean, thank you so much for being a guest on my show. It's been great to have you and I hope to see you one day in person.
1: Yeah, we will do. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate
0: it. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.